Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, after having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is a hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. What if you were determined to follow Jesus, but you had been through some major setbacks in your Christian walk? What if other Christians really hurt you and you weren't sure where you belonged sometimes? How would you go about reconstructing something you felt had to be deconstructed? Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and I'm so thankful you're listening. As hopefully you know, every month we're inviting a young woman with real faith questions to join me as a co-host, and together we're inviting guests on during the month to share their stories, and also hopefully tackle some of my co-hosts' hardest questions or objections about following Jesus. I hope you enjoyed our special conversations with guests during the month of July. I really enjoyed that. Um, Back in June, you may remember, we spoke with our co-host, Mariah, and I really hope you were able to follow along with her Finding Something Real journey. And I hope you caught the final bonus episode available to Patreon supporters where she shared where she's at now with Faith. And for my regular listener, this is the part of the program where I tell you why I hope you support what we're doing here. Patreon membership starts at just $5 a month, and that includes a one-time pack of stickers (laughs) and a monthly bonus episode that I record at the end of each month with just my co-host. That episode is a casual wrap-up discussion where we talk about what impact, if any, this podcast co-hosting journey had. So for the cost of about one Hallmark card... You can support this program and help keep it on the air. In exchange, we provide that bonus content for you. So if you want to discover more about that, you can go to findingsomethingreal.com and click on support at the top of the page. I also want to take a moment and thank our special podcast sponsor, Laurel Denise creates meaningful handmade jewelry meant to encourage, inspire, and remind people of what they cherish most in life. Their business is a small crew of women in Charlottesville, Virginia, just building on the dream that God gave the founder, Laurel, 15 years ago to create encouraging jewelry with her handwriting. And she has really beautiful handwriting. They've become a gift company that answers the call for much more than a bracelet. Their mission is to be their real selves on the internet and also provide meaningful gifts at a price people can afford. And I've said this before, friend, but on a personal level, I'm excited to share about Laurel's company because she's creating something that I personally love. I've ordered some of her bracelets for gifts, and her handmade leather bracelets are elegant and beautiful reminders of what I value. 
I wear one almost every day that says love um, so I can remember what matters and my exchange girls whom I hope feel loved when they hear me talk about it all the time. So if you want to know more about Laurel Denise and her company, go ahead and check out her creations at laureldenise.com. You can also find a link in the show notes. Okay, friend. So today on the podcast, I'm honored to introduce this month's special co-host. She's a 25-year-old wife, mother, and fellow podcaster. She's a Christian, but she also has some real big questions, and I'm excited for our time together. I'm excited to welcome this month's Finding Something Real podcast co-host, Bernice Craig, to the program. Bernice, welcome. Hi, I'm so glad to be able to be here with you. (laughs) I'm so excited that you're here. So before we begin, um, I didn't know you before you reached out to me. Would you share a little bit more about who you are, what you're doing? I know you're going through a big transition right now. I'd love for you to share a little bit about it. Yeah, so my name is Bernice. I am recording this from Ohio, uh, but actually we are moving to the Pacific Northwest to the Oregon coast in two days. Um, (laughs) So we, yeah, we are in the midst of a lot of transitions. Uh, My husband and I and our two kids are really excited. We're moving to be closer to family, but also uh, we love the Pacific Northwest culture. We love the the culture of playing outside, of being in nature and exploring. Um, my husband grew up in Alaska and his parents moved down to Oregon four or five years ago. And um, I grew up in New Hampshire and we've been in the middle of the country, far, far away from the oceans for far too long. So we're very excited to take our kids. Um, our son is two and a half and our daughter turned one in January. So she's, yeah, one and a half at the time that we'll be releasing these episodes. And yeah, we're so excited to share such a beautiful part of the country with them and get to be close to family. And yeah, it's a big transition, but we're very excited. Mm, I have a very um, soft spot in my heart for the Oregon coast because my family, we visit it every summer, as I know I've shared with you off air. Um, Have you been there? Have you visited before? Yes. Yeah. We have visited at least once a year, um, every year that we've been married or every year since Eli's parents moved. So yeah, at least four or five times we've been out there. Last time we were out there was this past summer. We were really fortunate to be able to go, um, even in the midst of everything that was going on with the coronavirus, we were still able to make a trip out last summer. And so we were feeling really fortunate and it cemented for sure our decision to, move our family, um, which it's not easy to move a whole family of four across the country, but definitely worth it. So we're really, we're feeling a lot of excitement these next couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of change all at once. (laughs) You shared a little bit that um, you love the outdoors. You shared that you're a mom with two little kids, which, you know, having been there, I know how busy that that makes you. What else do you love to do? Yeah, I love to sew, actually. I love um, garment making. I love making my own clothes and making clothes for my kids. I am not proficient at it yet, but I am learning a lot and enjoying the process. I, I guess that I tend to describe my style as more bordering on vintage inspired style. Um, and I'm really tall. So I have a a really hard time finding clothes in my size pretty much anywhere. 
Um, and one of the things that my husband and I committed to uh, about a year and a half ago was we didn't want to use our resources to support fast fashion um, because so much of the fashion industry is taking advantage of uh, people who are less economically secure. Mm-hmm. So rather than buying new and ready to wear clothes, I, um, I have always known how to sew. I learned how when I was really little, but have kind of taken up the discipline of learning how to be proficient and how to be skilled in sewing so that I can make my own clothes that fit me better than ready to wear clothes anyway. But also I'm pretty passionate about not buying things that hurt other people. So it is something that is a source of joy, but also that it lines up with my values. Yeah, I love that. So tell me a little bit more about um, your family of origin, your faith background. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, I grew up, um, like I said, I grew up in New Hampshire. I come from, so my parents separated when I was very, very small. So I was about four when my parents separated and I grew up living with my mom um, and close to my mother's side of the family, my extended family. So with my aunt, pretty much, I, I was baptized in the Methodist church as a baby and I pretty much went to church every single week. My aunt would take me, my Grammy would take me, um, but my immediate family didn't go to church. So I would go with my my aunt and my cousins and my grandmother and um, was in choir, was in youth group, was in all the different church ministries. I was able to travel with my church choir when I was in the third grade to England. Um, We yeah, we went on a tour of England uh, performing in different cathedrals and different um, places across the English English countryside. So that was really cool. And yeah, I really grew up in that church in a lot of ways and um, was a know-it-all. I always knew the answers, all the Bible trivia, all that stuff. I went to a private Christian school. Uh, It was a very, very small school in rural New Hampshire. Uh, My mother enrolled me there, um, not because of any particular religious values that she had, but because she believed that in a small private school setting, I would be less likely to be exposed to bullying um, and that I would be more likely to be with kids who were the sort of people that she wanted me to be friends with. That unfortunately was not the case. The school that I went to I was bullied pretty mercilessly as a little kid. I actually can remember being in the fifth grade and a classmate came and cornered me and told me that I should kill myself. Oh my gosh. Um, And I would have been like, I don't know how old fifth graders are, like 10, like Mm -hmm. something like that. So it wasn't a particularly emotionally safe environment. my home environment was not emotionally safe either. Uh, and even as a little kid, I was dealing with a lot of um, trauma that I had endured throughout my childhood. Um, my mother hasn't always been the most emotionally healthy person. And so there were a lot of unsafe environments that I was a part of. And part of that is just because she, would drink a lot. She was going through a lot. I I don't want to criticize my mom. Um, The divorce was not easy. She was a single mother raising two kids and taking care of her home and 
um, it wasn't always a good environment to be in. So with the unsafe environment at home, the unsafe environment at school, um, and just a, a lot of trauma that had come up throughout my childhood, I became very depressed um, and, and very anxious and was just trying to survive, honestly, for a lot of my growing up years. When I got to high school, I um, was kicked out uh, the summer before high school. My mom kicked me out of my house and I was 12. So I went and I lived with my dad. And as a child, I didn't really understand the legal system or the rules around, you know, parental control or um, any of that sort of stuff. And so she told me that I had to move back in with her and believing that that was actually true. Um, I did. I moved back in with her uh, right before I started high school and started attending at a different school, but also a private Christian school. Um, but this one was much more academically rigorous. It was a lot larger. So there were programs. I got involved in theater and that has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I am still very good friends with a lot of the people who I connected with through my years at um, the high school theater program. And actually my, the woman who ran that program at our school, her name is Grace and she's a good friend of mine still. So I'm uh, tremendously thankful for my years in theater, but for me, theater was also an escape from the really unhealthy things that were happening at home. I was at this time still going to church with my grandmother and my aunt on Sundays, um, going to Christian school, taking all these Christian classes. I, I knew all the things about the Bible. I knew all the, the facts, but um, I don't know that I would have said that I had a relationship with Jesus. I didn't really know what that looked like. Um, from in my own life, I had, you know, adults in my life who were modeling a life of Christian faith for me, but as a child, I didn't see the, the way, the way that we live out our faith is not necessarily, um, evident in, you know, the classroom. Like it's, it's, it's about more than just that. It's about the way that we carry ourselves throughout all of the things in our life. So I wasn't necessarily seeing what a personal faith relationship looked like. Um, and I was still dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety and started, you know, kind of was in and out at different counselors offices, but um, all of that was under the control of my mother. And so that was kind of a loaded experience. Um, when I was, when I turned 16, I, uh, emancipated myself and I moved out of my mother's house permanently and into my father's house and my dad worked the night shift so he would be gone all night long and he would be asleep during the day um, when I was at school so I didn't really see him much and as much as he you know made sure I had the resources to take care of myself he wasn't really physically there to parent me so I was a lot on my own for that would have been my sophomore year. So until, yeah, my sophomore and junior year of high school, I was pr pretty much on my own. Um, not that I had to take care of myself because I didn't have to work a job. I didn't have to make sure that there was food in the fridge, but I was alone most of the time when I wasn't at school. 
I didn't really have parental influence. And then at the end of my uh, high school career, my little brother was kicked out of my mother's house too. So he came and he lived with us at my dad's house and I functionally became his parental figure. So I was a senior in high school trying to graduate and do college applications. And I was still heavily involved in the theater program and um, was dancing with a local dance company and was doing all these things, but then also kind of was having to be a mom to my little brother and having to deal with my own depression and anxiety and then having to deal with my own brother's uh, trauma and his experiences. And around this time, um, someone came to our school and offered, they, they were sharing about a ministry. They used this word called discipleship which I had never heard before. I was not familiar with the concept of discipleship. Um, and I was really, really like ser searching for what I was supposed to do next. I had been accepted to all of my schools. I had really great financial aid packages. I was really poised to start college and be really successful um, in continuing my educational career, but it didn't feel right. I just didn't feel, I didn't know if I didn't feel ready or if if it just didn't feel like the thing I was supposed to be doing. Um, and at this time, I, I, you know, I had been in Christian school, I had been in church my whole life, but I didn't really know how to talk to God. And, and so I remember just like looking up at the sky one night and saying, you know, God, what actually am I supposed to do? Like, I need an answer. And if you don't tell me in the next two weeks, I'm just going to do what I want. And I'm just going to go to college and I'm going to have a great time. But if you want me to do something different, I need really clear instructions on how to do that. And I'm not advocating for that necessarily <laughs> that type of prayer, but I, you know, that was my desperate, like, I don't know what to do. And it was literally the next day that these guys came into our school and were sharing about this program. And um, the Dean of Women for our school confided in me later. She told me that she asked them to come because she was hoping that I would go and be a part of this program. <laughs> um, and so I did, I, I took a gap year, uh, what I expected to be a gap year and was a part of this discipleship program in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So I moved myself down on my 18th birthday into uh, really, it was just, it was a house with a couple of roommates and we were doing Bible classes together and we were doing character development together and we were doing leadership training together and um, did that. And I, what was meant to be a one year program, I, at the end of the year, they asked me to come back and uh, help lead the program, uh, be like an RA for the following year. So I came back and was an RA. And then the year after that, they asked if I wanted to be an intern with the ministry. And so I came back and I did that. And um, the year that the third year that I was there, I started dating my now husband who um, was also a part of the program. So we met through uh, this discipleship program. And by that time we were, you know, really involved. We had helped uh, a local, we had, we were really involved in our local church. We had helped um, plant a new congregation for this local church. We were dedicated volunteers. We were, my husband was 
um, before we got married, when we were engaged, he was the uh, worship leader for our church, um, one of the worship leaders for our church. And yeah, we were really, really involved and we were thinking, okay, you know, this is what, this is it. You know, we love this community. We love these people. We're, we're getting married. We're going to start having kids soon. We're going to settle down and we're going to be in this community here. These are the people that know us and we know them. And this is our family in Christ. So we were at that point thinking we were going to live in Ohio forever, Mm -hmm. um, that this was going to be our home. I'm going to pause you just for a second because I want to clarify something. So before you left for this um, this gap year initially, that was really, it sounds like one of the first times you were like, God, <laughs> like like having that direct conversation with him. So did that continue after that? Was that something that started to evolve in your faith where you, it, it went from just kind of observing it to suddenly it was this relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Did that, was there a shift that happened there? Yeah. So there was a shift. I came into the program here and, um, really was learning how to, to live that like life of faith was really learning, you know, what it meant to have a relationship with God, what it meant to have a daily discipline of prayer or scripture reading, or I had never even heard worship music before at that point. So, um, was listening to worship music and was engaging with other Christians. We were experiencing our faith in community. So was really learning what it meant to, to be in relationship, to be, um, to know God and to, instead of just, just know about God. Yeah. 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 So then, um, you started to get plugged in with this faith community. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we were getting plugged in in this faith community. We're serving. Um, we're just like we were on the track to both be um, eventually on the paid staff. And I, during my years in that discipleship program, really began to discern a call towards professional ministry. I mean, professional ministry, like full time ministry. Um, like really felt like the Lord was saying, I have gifted you in this area and I'm calling you to it. Um, and so I, in seeking to be responsive to that call was putting myself in situations and environments where I was being trained for uh, future vocational ministry. And that was going to be with that church community. My expectations and my hopes and my dreams were all that I would eventually someday get to be on staff with this church that I loved, that I was serving. Um, And Eli kind of came and went off the staff. My husband is a gifted musician um, and was trained in the discipleship program and in the church um, to do worship leading and to do worship ministry. And so when we planted that church in our local community, he was the staff worship leader for that church plant. Um, he stepped back from that because he realized that, you know, he was only 22, 21 at that time. He might have only even, he might've been 20 cause it was before we got married. So he felt like he just was too young. Um, and too inexperienced for that level of responsibility and spiritual responsibility because, you know, the worship leader does have a significant spiritual role. 
um, on Sunday mornings and he just didn't feel like he was up to the task, um, that leadership task. And so he stepped out of that role and they, a couple years later was thinking about stepping back into that role. The church really wanted him to, um, but then again, decided, no, this is not the right choice for me as being a gifted musician doesn't make me the right fit to be a worship leader is really the conclusion that he came to. But there was a lot of pressure on him that like the best way to use your gift is to be a worship leader and to do all these things. And I think that for us, that was where we started to see some of the tension and the rift growing between us and our community um, in that we didn't really fit into the box that they wanted us to be in. Um, I, in that community, there isn't really a lot of room for women who have uh, gifts of leadership or gifts of teaching. And so in a lot of ways, I was paving the way, but that made a lot of people have a lot of frustration and, um, it made, it made people upset that I, as a woman, thought that I should teach um, in spite of me being clearly gifted and being encouraged by the um, pastoral staff that I was really gifted in this area, not being allowed to do it because of my gender as a woman. And Did they say that? Was that like something that was actually said to you? Yeah, it, it was couched in a, in a lot of religious language. Um, I, this church community is in Amish country, <laughs> um, or right on the edge of Amish country in Ohio. And there's a lot of conservative influence in the community here. And so, uh, they take what is known as a complementarian position when it comes to men and women's roles in the church. Um, mm -hmm. And so for people who are not familiar with complementarianism, there is basically a spectrum of what different churches believe about women's roles. And so on one end, there's like patriarchy and complementarianism. And on the other end, there is egalitarianism and mutualism. And they were probably on the spectrum. On, they were definitely on the complementarian end of things. So I was... Um, fully supportive of that theolo like theological position at the time. I really, I was told that that was what the Bible taught. Um, and I was supportive of that. I, I wasn't trying to break the rules or bend the rules. I was just trying to live out the gifts that God had given me, um, fully believing that God would not give me gifts that would contradict his scripture. Yeah. And so didn't, wasn't aspiring to be a pastor, wasn't aspiring to be the head preacher or teacher or anything like that. I just wanted to teach, um, teach women in particular, because I felt like that was the best outlet for the gifts that I had been given was to do ministry with, with women, because that was what I felt like I was allowed to do. And I didn't want to push the boundaries. Which... I mean, I have some familiarity with complementarianism, right? Um, <laughs> that That's totally legit, right? To teach women, it's, that should yes. be totally fine. So, but yes. did you receive pushback even in that? Was that? 
Well, so there wasn't really any women's ministry in place in our church community. Um, and there are some, some of the pastor's wives started a twice per year, basically women's retreat day. Um, but I wasn't invited to be involved. Um, there was one time that I was asked if I would come and teach like a breakout. Um, but then there was a lot of like, they said, you can do whatever you want in your breakout, just do a breakout. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll teach about, you know, the Jesus talks about how our, like his yoke is easy and his burden is light and, uh, in him, we can find rest for our souls. And so restfulness was the theme of this retreat. And so I thought, well, I'll just teach on that passage of scripture and how, um, real rest doesn't come from a spa day. Real rest comes from intimacy with Christ and, and dependence on the Holy Spirit. But on the day that that retreat happened, um, I don't know if there was a miscommunication or something, but the pastor's wives who were leading that retreat thought at, or told or someone miscommunicated and said that I was going to be teaching about Bible journaling. And I don't know anything about Bible journaling. <laughs> so I didn't. I taught the lesson that I had prepared and I was not invited to participate again after that. Hmm. That probably hurt. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't um, my favorite. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but even after all this was happening, I still felt gifted and called. Um, and I was still serving in our community and my husband and our very good friend, uh, Tyler, um, they were kind of, what's the word? The pastors and the staff on the church really wanted to groom Eli and Tyler to eventually be the pastor and worship leader of a church. So they would, you know, really they tried to give them extra discipling, extra like resources, extra training, all this stuff that they didn't particularly want. <laughs> um, so one of the pastors reached out to Eli and to Tyler, who's a very good friend of ours. He's been um, on the podcast that I host a couple of times. And he, the pastor said, I want to train you guys in preaching um, so I would like to meet with you every other week um, and I'll just teach you everything I know about preaching. And so they both said, oh yeah, sure. We'd be happy to do that. You know, that sounds like a good thing to learn. Um, but I was not invited mm. and I went anyway. So I, cause I really, I really wanted to have the access to these educational resources um, I didn't, at this time, I really didn't want to be a pastor. I, I just wanted to learn how to steward my gifts. And so I went to these class classes um, with Eli and Tyler and I was not rejected. I was allowed to come and continue in the classes. And even in those classes, it became very clear that I was gifted and skilled beyond my peers. Um, who I love. Obviously, Eli is my husband and Tyler is our best friend. I'm not saying that to criticize them, but they would both support the statement that I am a, a better teacher than they are. 
So we were allowed, um, the three of us were given the opportunity to take an adult Sunday school class. So in our church community uh, on Sunday mornings before the service, there would be adult Sunday school classes, um, different, like in just different breakout rooms in the church. Um, there would be groups of, you know, 10 to 20 people who were coming and just studying the Bible in a classroom setting, uh, just as like a small group. And so we were allowed to have one of those. Uh, and so at, at that time I was like, oh great, this is like exactly what I wanna be doing. I get to teach the Bible with my best friends to a willing audience who wants to learn and engage in a small group setting and we can have great conversations and all this stuff. But then it really wasn't my class. And I was the only woman in the whole church who was teaching anything other than like children's programming. So I was the only woman teaching adults. Um, and I had a really hard time with it, just given some of the experiences that I had had in the church up to that point, I just felt like I was being watched. Like I couldn't say anything wrong. I couldn't do anything wrong. I couldn't be I couldn't ask the wrong questions or I was going to be criticized and the pastors were going to hear about it and I was going to lose my um, privilege to teach. So I want to stop you right there because um, and I want to um, make sure we we have enough time to cover all of this. Um, did they actually say that to you? Um, did they like pull you aside and say, Hey, we have a problem with you teaching this class or we have a problem with, or was that just, and I'm, I'm not negating your experience, but was that something that you just felt or was there like, um, a conversation that happened there? Yeah, there was no conversation about me. Um, I felt a lot of the insecurity of it because at the same time that I was taking on the Sunday school class, the church was having like public discussions about women's roles um, and what women were and were not allowed to do. And so because that was the backdrop of me taking on this class, because people were having all these theoretical discussions about what the Bible says about women and the things that women are allowed to do, all these men were having these conversations. I'm over here, the only woman involved, <laughs> not allowed to talk, not allowed to, to share my theological convictions or my experiences. Um, and yeah, it was a difficult time for me. Looking back, do you feel like that was, um, how do I articulate this? I'm not going to articulate it very well. <laughs> I'll just ask. Um, do you feel like that was the result of a complementarianism, uh, you know, preaching, or was it really um, an, like a passive aggressive, like, hey, we don't really want you to be teaching kind of like, yeah. was there something shifting in you that was more eagle? eagle I can't even say the word egalitarian, egalitarian, egalitarian. egalitarian. Yeah. Um, or were you still in that camp? And you thought, what is going on here? Why? Why am I doing what I think I should be allowed to do? And I feel this tension. Yeah. I was still firmly complementarian at that point and still firmly supportive of not having any women who were the main pastor, all, all of that stuff still was supportive of the way the church was going in that regard. But my, my convictions about what scripture said um, 
were that there were female deacons Mm -hmm. and there were women who were teaching the Bible in the New Testament. Right. And so I thought, I felt at that time that you could be a complementarian who took the Bible seriously. And so who believed that women should be involved in these different things. Women should be involved in teaching like they were in the early church. Um, And so, yeah, that (laughs) was kind of a rift. And, and I, I remember having conversations with the pastoral staff and just saying, I don't understand if you guys say that you agree with me, why we have to practice these things in the way that we're practicing them, why women can't be deacons, even though you say they can, how come they aren't? And they would always just fall back on, well, the community here is just so conservative. We just can't rush it. We can't rush them and force them into accepting women in leadership roles, even though, yes, you're gifted, we can't do it because it'll make people mad. And I kind of sat in that for years, you know, just trying to serve my community without pushing the boundaries, but pushing the boundaries just by serving my community with the gifts that I had. Mm-hmm. So as the, like, as time went on, um, maybe more of these differences of thought started to pop up. Um, I started to have a lot of convictions that men and women should be discipled together, that we shouldn't separate the genders for like all that when we separate men and women and their experiences, that's not necessarily for our long-term good, which is not to say I'm not supportive of women's ministries. I am. I think that we should have ministries for men and ministries for women, but we should also have places where men and women are coming together and learning together Mm -hmm. because men and women often have different perspectives and it's valuable to hear from other people. Um, So I I started to have these, you know, beliefs about, you know, what would be good in an ideal sense. Um, Not necessarily that we had to start doing them, (laughs) just uh, things that I I hoped for, for the long-term of the church. Yes. And Um, at this, our, our son was born in the midst of all of this and, um, these rifts kind of began to show up more, uh, at, by this time I was actually on staff with the church in an administrative capacity. Um, so I was a pastoral assistant was what I was called. So I was doing scheduling and I was doing, um, I was ghostwriting blog posts and emails and stuff like that, but I was also doing research uh, and doing a lot of the preparation for the pastor's sermons and pulling resources and writing outlines and doing a lot of theological work for these pastors. And so then I started to think, well, how come I can write the sermon, but I can't preach it? And I didn't tell anyone that I was thinking those things, (laughs) but I was getting confused about how come it was okay that I wrote all the material for a man to preach, but I wasn't allowed to preach it myself. Um, And in the midst of all of this, I had a disagreement with one of the pastoral staff. Um, It was someone that my husband and I had been very close to. Uh, for years, uh, was a mentor, was 
a really significant person in our lives. And him and I had a small disagreement and I was just really hurt by it. I don't think he really meant anything by it, but I had a hard time letting it go. And in this religious tradition, one of the things that we talk about is that before you take communion, if you have something against your brother, you should go to them and, and repent and apologize and seek reconciliation before you come to the communion table. And so two years ago, right, right around Easter, I, I knew that it was, I know it's right around Easter because we always have communion at Good Friday. And I was really looking forward to the Good Friday service, but I knew that in order to partake in communion, I needed to seek out this pastor and this friend and try to be reconciled and have this issue resolved. And so I reached out to him and I just, I sent him an email and I just said, I'm so sorry that I have been keeping myself distant, but I just wanted to share with you that this thing that you had said hurt me and um, just confessed that I had been hurt and apologized for having been distant um, and gave him a lot of credit for, you know, not meaning to hurt me, but um, he responded and said, we need to meet in person immediately to get this worked out. And so the next day we went and uh, had a cup of coffee and he told me at that time that I was too divisive and that I wasn't loyal to him. I wasn't respectful of all of the work that he had done to get me my staff job and all of the things that he had sacrificed for me. And he made, he made everything all about him. Um, when I had confessed my hurt, he, he attacked me. He attacked my character. He had said that I was a drama queen, that I was trying to divide the church, that I was trying to turn the church against him, that I had attacked him. Um, he reversed the roles of me as the victim uh, he, he reversed it and he made himself the victim. He made me the oppressor. He attacked me and my character and I was shocked. Um, just absolutely shocked that, you know, he was my pastor, but more than that, he was my friend. I had homeschooled his children for a number of years uh, as a part-time, like helping out their family. I was really, really close with them. Um, and I was just absolutely floored. And he told me at that time that he wasn't going to fire me from my job, but I either needed to change and decide I was going to be completely loyal to him, or I needed to quit my job at the church. And that actually he thought that we should leave the church community. And yeah, I was just floored mm -hmm. and wounded and yeah I, I didn't know how to respond um we didn't leave right away we stayed and we kept serving because at that time I was still on staff with the church so we were really really involved and um people didn't know this at the time but we were pregnant with our second with our daughter so we didn't leave. We stayed for another eight months until after our daughter was born. And we only left after she was born 
um, actually at COVID time was when we left the church because we knew if we just left at COVID, I, I was so afraid of being, of him being right about me. I didn't want, I didn't believe that I was a drama queen or that I was trying, that I was divisive. I didn't believe those things, but I was afraid that maybe they were true. And so I didn't say anything about what he had said to me, didn't, um, tell anyone what was going on, didn't know what to do or say. And so when COVID came and we thought we just can disappear and we can use COVID as an excuse for why we're not going anymore. We did, that was what we did so that I wouldn't have to answer those questions. And so that I wouldn't have to tell people what happened because I didn't want to start drama. I didn't want to make him look bad as a pastor, but I also didn't want him to be right about all of the things that he said about me. So obviously you were hurt, you left. Um, and was there a point where you formally left, where you told people, this is why we're leaving. This is what we've done. So I wrote a letter to the board of elders. This church has a, like a structure that has, um, instead of a board of directors, it's a board of elders who are basically leaders and like spiritual leaders in the church. Um, I wrote a letter to the board of the elders and I shared some of that information with one of the pastors about why we left. Um, but really we haven't had any contact with that church community since we left. We are moving physically out of the area where most of those people live. And since we stopped going to church there, most people haven't reached out to us. We did not tell most people, if, if people asked why they hadn't seen us, we did not share the story of what happened with me and this pastor because we didn't want to make this, we didn't want to hurt this pastor's reputation, but also we didn't want to be attacked. Um, we didn't want to be told that we were the problem or that we were too sensitive um, or that we were just flat out wrong. And so we shared what was going on with uh, people who we were really close to. Um, and we shared what was going on with mentors and counselors, but we did not share this story with the broader church community. Yeah. Well, you, and you didn't want to be divisive. Um, right. So why, why are you sharing it now? I'm sharing it now because I, for the past couple of years, didn't recognize what was happening to me as spiritual abuse. And there is an epidemic of spiritual abuse in American churches. And I think that I have felt the weight of being in the, in that abusive experience. I have um, recently started going back to professional counseling because I couldn't sleep at night. Um, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about the church. I couldn't stop thinking about what if he does this to somebody else? I couldn't stop thinking about what if he's right about me? Is he right about me? Am I this terrible person who just wants to destroy this church? But how can I be that person when I love the church so much? Mm. I don't want someone else to be in the midst of an experience of spiritual abuse without the language to explain what's happening to them. And I don't want someone to feel alone if they're being spiritually abused or misled. Mm. What made you decide that it was spiritual abuse, Bernice? What, what, how did you come to that point instead of, you know, 
basically wallowing it and feeling like, who am I? Am I who this guy told me I was? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, I think that I started to recognize that it was spiritual abuse when, uh, if, if, if you are familiar with Christian culture, um, two-ish years ago, a large church in the Chicago area called Willow Creek um, had some information about some abuses that had happened by their pastor to some of their staff. And as these allegations were coming out, I just kept thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. That's abusive? That's what happened to me. That's the way that people talk to me that's how I was treated. That's a, that's abuse. And like the more people came forward with their stories of abuse in American churches all over the place, the more I started to think, wait a second, wait, I was abused. Like that was spiritual abuse that happened to me. And I I had a hard time believing it for a, a while because I was so close to the person who had said these things to me. Um, I was so like, he was someone who was a very good friend for years and years who I was very close to his family. And so I didn't think that he could possibly be hurting me, but he was, and he was misunderstanding me. And he said things that were abusive and he used his power against me. And when I realized that, that he had deliberately used his position and his power to try to force me to behave in the way that he wanted me to, even though it was against my convictions. Um, that was when I started to realize I was spiritually abused. Did you ever approach him afterwards and say, hey, this wasn't right? I did not. I felt like... Um, for me, that that conversation where he had said all those things to me was my attempt to say that what he had said to me before was not right. And so when I tried to reconcile with him after he had sinned against me once, sinned against, I mean, yeah, just using the religious language, I, it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> um, when I had tried to reconcile with him that first time and he had said all of those things and silenced me, Um, It would not have been safe um, spiritually, emotionally, particularly to be in a one-on-one environment with him again after that point. So I had not uh, spoken to him directly since we stopped going to the church there. What about your husband? Did he ever reach out to him and say, hey, (laughs) because you guys were good friends. I'm just wondering if that ever came up. Yeah. I think that it was actually really difficult for my husband what had happened to me because he had been really close with this pastor even before I moved to Ohio. Um, They had a really long relationship of mentoring and friendship. And so when this happened, it was a different kind of loss for my husband um, because he had maybe even been closer to this pastor than I had. Uh, He did not, after we had left the church, reach out to him again. No. Very sad, heartbreaking story. Um, Looking forward to having somebody on here to talk with uh, who's been through a similar situation and 
and maybe um, can share about, you know, a little further perspective um, on this. But as a result, um, I'm just going to fast forward a little bit here. Obviously, this last year has been very difficult for you as you've been, you know, questioning, your, I'm sure, your own faith. I know you've shared that uh, with me. Would you mind sharing some of the questions that have come out of this painful process for you? And and then um, once you share those, I've got some follow-up questions. Yeah, I think one of the biggest questions that I have is, how can we reform the church so that it is not a spiritual climate that is rife with abuse? And that um, there's lots of room for abusers in the church. Um, and how can, can we, I guess, even can we change the church so that it's not a safe place for people to manipulate um, and for people to gain and then use their power against another person? That's, that's one of my biggest questions is, can the church survive the 21st century? Because there isn't going to be there isn't always going to be safe places for abusers, but are we gonna lose the whole church because of abuse that's happening? And I don't know if that's it. That doesn't communicate clearly how no, I feel, I th- I but think I don't know how to good. put it. So is the higher, like the church structure, is it even, mm-hmm. you know, is it sustainable moving forward? Uh, and right. does the the culture itself create a place for people to be abusive in a way that's, uh, yeah. you know, structurally um, unfair. I think that's a fair question. I think it's a very prevalent question in culture right now, right? Systemic uh, yeah. <laughs> issues is a hot topic. Yeah. And I can understand that question. Um, okay, so that's a good one. Tell me what else you have that you want to discuss while we're on this journey together. Yeah, I want to know if people can disagree on theological conclusions and still be a church because the reasons that we were asked to leave our church were not because we didn't believe in Jesus. It wasn't primary theological disagreement. It was just issues of practicing the faith. And so I really want to know, is Christian unity a lie in the modern church? Like, can we, is there really room for unity in the church in the 21st century? Because I believe that I have convictions about that, but I don't see it being lived out by churches. Great question. You had a couple more, at least one more here that I I can see. Um, Oh, what was the one more? (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of your questions was, how can we help the many, many people who are deconstructing? Mm, Yeah, yeah. I have a really big just big soft spot in my heart for people who are in the process of deconstructing their faith. And I think that so many of our churches view deconstruction like a dirty word, Mm -hmm. but I wanna know, is there anything we can do to help people who are deconstructing? Because I don't think that deconstruction is demolition. I think that you can deconstruct your faith and build back something better. But I don't know if churches believe that. And I don't know if churches want to believe that. It's interesting. There's different kinds of deconstruction too, right? I mean, like what you're yeah. sharing, you never, unless I'm 
I, I missed this part, but it didn't seem like you ever came to a point where you were ready to, you know, change your theological views on Jesus. But mm-hmm. these peripheral, peripheral, <laughs> there's a lot of words here today that I can't pronounce, peripheral issues, sometimes the muddiness of those, the rejection we might feel on those different theological constructs can lead us to that core of, well, do I really believe all these different things about Jesus too, right? So have you wrestled with some of those as well in the midst of all this? I have not wrestled with those things as much, but um, even my husband's experience has been different than mine and our friends' experiences have been different than ours. Um, We have seen other people kind of falling out of this church community who are just have different questions and different experiences of deconstruction than I have. So I don't want to prescribe what has been, you know, my method of deconstruction for everyone. Um, But I think that there is room and space for even those really big questions about, you know, is God good or is God real? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to know, what do you hope to gain from this experience, Bernice? Selfishly, Janelle, (laughs) I wanted to hang out with you. (laughs) Oh, I'll give you a dime later for that. (laughs) My grandpa used to say that all the time whenever I'd say something nice. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) No, um, I, uh, I host a podcast and I have kind of been like seeing your podcast from a distance for a while. And I kind of wanted to get involved in what you were doing here. I think that what you're doing and the people that you're reaching out to, um, through your podcast is important. And I wanted to be a part of it, but also, I, I, I think that it's time for me to start sharing my story and to start asking questions that are based out of my own experience instead of pretending my experiences don't matter. Um, and so this is a big step for me, you know, even sharing a lot of what I shared with you in this conversation is a big step for me. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, just so you know, I did clarify with her that it was okay to share whatever she did because <laughs> I do know it's hard. It's hard to... Yeah. Uh, share those stories. You were intentionally vague, which I appreciate. And I'm sure whoever's listening appreciates as well. But I I like what you said when we, um, you know, stepped away from recording for a second, um, as you were sharing your story that, you know, there are a lot of people who have similar experiences. And, um, and these are important stories to tell. um, Because as you mentioned, and I, I really think it comes down to evangelism, to be honest. Um, there's a lot of young people and a lot of people in general who are leaving uh, church, who are deconstructing. Um, And so uh, if our heart really is to reach people who are struggling with faith, then we have to be willing to have have difficult conversations sometimes, uncomfortable conversations. And if you're a Christian listening to this, I'm sure you feel a little uncomfortable because I know I have, (laughs) you know, because it's, it's sad. And I, um, you know, I don't know that pastor. I don't know his heart. Um, you know, but we're all human beings. We all make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes can be really damaging and, um, really push people away. And so, um, but man, thank God for grace. So hopefully we're going to find a lot of grace in this process. Um, and, and this won't just be a get to hang out with Janelle time, although I love that. Uh, no, um, I'm excited to have people on who can, you know, really speak into these different things. And especially your question about, you know, can the church do good moving into, um, you know, this culture that we live in? Um, I mean, clearly, I believe so. But I think having some people on who can really speak to that 
Um, it's going to be really valuable. So I'm excited about our, our journey. Um, so a couple of final questions for you. Um, this podcast has always been about a journey. And over the course of the next few weeks, I hope you and I will be able to have a series of conversations with folks who will be touching on some of the same issues that you just brought up. Um, I know you're busy and I know you're a mom. Um, but I do want to challenge you with something and I haven't come up with the challenge yet. Every time I record with a co-host, I always spring a challenge on them. Um, and usually it's like to read something in the Bible and then, uh, read like a separate book or whatever. I'm going to do that to you, but I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. I will put it in the show notes <laughs> later because I'm going to figure it out now. Like I'm pray about it. Um, but I will challenge you, um, with that. Cause I think there's so much power in what we read and, um, you know, I, man, I hear your story and it's, it's so heartbreaking and I, I know you're not the only one. Um, so I'm excited. Well, to talk I, about so this. actually I recently read, and so this obviously doesn't work as a challenge for me, but as a resource for you, if you are encountering maybe more people in like similar, um, circumstances to me, um, Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger recently wrote a book called a church called Tove. And that is an mm. amazing resource, really, really accessible, but also really like, um, goes through and helps identify maybe some unhealthy, um, church cultures, but also is really all about how do we build healthy, good church cultures. So very, very good book. Okay. And who was that that wrote that? You're not the first person who's told me that unless, did you tell me about that two months ago? When we talked? It might've been me. Okay. <laughs> I'm a big fan of this book. Um, I'm sure Scott I've heard of it McKnight. Before. Okay. I will look it up. It's fantastic. Okay, that will be my challenge. So I'll I'll read that book. I will read it. Um, so you get a challenge. I get a challenge too. <laughs> that's not how this works. By the way, tell us a little bit about your podcast before I ask you the final question. Oh, yeah. So um, I am the host of the Rediscovery Podcast, and um, I'm a real big believer in spirituality as a journey and not prescribing anyone else be on the same spiritual journey that you are on or that I am on, um, but really respecting uh, the experiences of other people. And I am committed to uh, this, the journey of Christian spirituality and, and learning how to live out my faith in my real life and in my real world. And so my podcast is kind of making space for different expressions and different thinking and different practices of the Christian faith. And so this coming season, um, this is going to be coming out in August. So this season we have talked about things like, what do you do when the church fails you? Um, but then we've also talked about purity culture and we have talked about, um, you know, having healthy relationships as a launch point for conflict. We have talked about just so many different topics from all over like Christian experience. We've talked about um, meditation as a way to practice faith, all these different things. <laughs> so we really run the gamut over at the Rediscovery Podcast. That's exciting. All right, we'll link that as well. Um, okay, final question. The finding, the finding Something Real podcast is all about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Those are all things that I believe in their truest form are found in relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, if you had to pick one that is most compelling to you, 
the thing that you would most want in relationship uh, with God, what would it be and why? Restoration, eternity, authenticity, or love? Oh, that's so hard. (laughs) (laughs) I think that I... The cry, the cry of my heart, we use that phrase in Christian culture, <laughs> um, the real longing that I have been experiencing over the past number of years has just been for restoration. So I, I think that that would be the one that I would, I would love to see, because we know that the Christian story is a story that ultimately culminates in restoration but we also know that God is moving and working and acting in the world today. And so I would love to see more. That's one of the things I, if I could see more of any of those things, I would want to see more restoration, more, because maybe that's the culmination of all of them. You know, you can't have restoration without love. You can't have restoration without authenticity. Um, And so, yeah, I think I would have to pick restoration. Well, I'm excited for August. Bernice, Craig, thank you so much for coming on as my co-host. I'm excited to go through some hard but meaningful conversations with you. And I'm I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming on. I'm excited yeah, for this. Yeah, thank you so much, Janelle. And hey, you're coming to the you're coming south. Yeah. This I, summer. I will probably I before this airs, I will probably get to see you in person. We Let's should make do it. it. Yes, for sure. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.